Good morning, sanctuary. Grace and peace. I don't know about you, but this week was the longest year of my life. It just kept going. But man, it's good to be here with you all doing what we're doing. So thank you for being here this morning. Thank you to those of you who are joining us on our live stream, those of you who um, still don't feel just quite yet that it is uh, the best decision to be around a lot of people inside. We respect those decisions. We are here ready to welcome you with socially distant welcomed arms whenever you decide to come back to us. But let me start by saying that I know there are some here today who are relieved. And there are some here today who are grieved. And what I want you to know today is that you are seen. That there's room here, no matter where you find yourself on that spectrum, that we are bound together by so much more than just our political identities. So we, as a community, as sanctuary, we're committed to moving forward as a community, as a people of faith that is marked by the gospel of Jesus. We're committed to listening deeply to one another, praying fervently for one another, and hoping endlessly as we continue to be people who pledge our allegiance to Christ and to Christ's kingdom. This is always an exciting time of the year for a number of reasons, but for those of us who are more shaped and formed by the church calendar, we are starting to wind down this long season of ordinary time, which has been happening to us since Pentecost. So this is the season where we start to anticipate a new year for the church. We start to come into these next few weeks as we prepare for a season called Advent, and we enter into this new year knowing that this is a season of longing, knowing that this is a season of hope and anticipation, anticipating that Christ has not only come, but will come again. And so we join in that expectation. But it's also a time when we pair that expectation to the reality that not everything has been set right yet. We join into the reality that there's still so much that is broken and not yet right about the world, that not everything is as it ought to be or as we hope it will become. And so I think this is a message that we all need to hear, that as we move toward this season of Advent over these next few weeks, we remember that we are to live all of our days with this kind of Advent posture, that we live all of our days with a certain kind of hope and a certain kind of anticipation that one day everything will be set right, but still today, right now, we live in the reality that it's not quite there yet. For those of us living on this side of resurrection, it means that we are slow to put our hope in anything other than the kingdom of God. But it also means that we recognize that the kingdom is not and won't be fully present and fully realized until Christ returns. 
So while we're here, why not jump into a little sidebar about the end of the world? Over the past couple of months, we've covered the devil, we've covered sin, so let's just move right on along to Armageddon, the end of the world. So if, if you're anything like me, your understanding of the things that you've been taught, the things that people have told you about the end of the world, it's probably occupied more brain space than it really deserves. For most of us, we either grew up in a tradition or we had a cousin tradition that never really tied our future as human beings to the resurrection. We tied our future into this end of the world idea, but even then we weren't really sure what that looked like. So instead, we ended up tying the future to something like the rapture, right? where we're taken out of here once and for all. We go up to that eternal feast up in the sky somewhere, and we can finally shed all of those cares and concerns of the world. Does this sound familiar? But this is not the Christian story, as hard as that may be to hear. If anything, these ideas that we're going to be beamed out of here like Star Trek characters These are much more pagan ideas than they are Christian ideas. These kinds of ideas derive more from Plato's philosophy than they do from Christian theology. And so this leads to all different kinds of ideas like escapism, the idea that this place isn't our home, the created world doesn't matter because we're going to get rescued any minute now, and so why work to make anything better? If it's all going to end, why work to actually make the world a better place to live in? Again, this has more to do with Plato's idea that the most perfect reality that the soul can find for itself is actually separate from the body. This sort of ghostly, free, unembodied nature is somehow some kind of ideal for the world. But this is a far cry from the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, then we bump into one of our lectionary texts for today. It comes to us from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, you don't have to be a Dr. Green to read this and immediately connect the dots on how we get from we who are alive will be caught up in the clouds together to something like the Left Behind series. There are a million of these dots, 
And so we're not going to spend a lot of time there, but we've all had these experiences, right? For those of us who grew, grew up in maybe evangelical spaces or charismatic spaces, the rapture was such a big deal to us. And so as a child, you're left with this kind of angst, and you're always wondering, did I miss it? If you've ever had any of these kinds of experiences where maybe as a teenager, you show up back at home and your mom and dad had ran out for an errand or something and the siblings are gone at somebody else's house, but you didn't know any of this. So you show up to your empty house expecting people to be there. You start making some phone calls. Nobody's answering the phone. And the next thing you know, you are on your face praying before God, why have you forsaken me? And then who do you always call? just to make sure you didn't miss it. Who's the one person you know is safe who's likely going to answer the phone? It's your grandma. She is the one that you call, and when she answers the phone, you have this overwhelming sense of relief. Oh, I didn't miss it. Or grandma wasn't as sanctified as she was leading us on to be. So again, there are a million dots to connect here, but we have to read this letter through the lens, these words of Paul, through the lens of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we also have to have a sense of what Paul is alluding to here, the kind of language that he's using. N.T. Wright makes a terribly dry joke about the Apostle Paul and that he says, Paul is never one to use one image if three will do. And that's exactly what we see here in Paul's letter. So think for a minute about some of the other places in Scripture that we bump into clouds. There's several of them. But of course, we have this cloud by day, this image for the people of God who have just exited this world of Pharaoh, this world of enslavement, they're wandering in the wilderness, and God promises them, I will present myself to you as a cloud by day, leading you through the wilderness. But we also have this image of Mount Sinai, and we have this moment when Israel's leaders are going up the mountain to meet Moses, who has just heard from God, and he's now coming down from this mountain covered in the cloud, and he's received the law. Paul even tosses in another image here from Daniel 7. This is kind of getting us into the weeds, but it's this dream about God descending to the earth on a cloud and his people worshiping him. So all of this language that Paul is using about clouds, about meeting this God in the sky, all of this language would be very, very familiar to the Israelites. And then finally, he also ties in this emperor picture, this language of a Caesar coming to a city and the nobles would rush out to meet him in order to escort him in. When we start to put together this three-dimensional puzzle of a metaphor together, what we start to hear Paul saying isn't that Jesus is going to come on a cloud, invite us to saddle up and then get out of here. That's not the image that Paul paints for us here. Christ, in Paul's words, is descending. And descending goes which way? 
It goes down. And then we who are alive are caught up in Christ's presence in the cloud of the Spirit as Christ escorts in the kingdom of God and the fullness thereof to this earth. And what's more, Paul says, to encourage one another with these words, that somehow this has to sound like good news to us. And I don't know about you, But whenever it came to the sermons and the poorly produced movies on the end of the world and on being left behind, I was anything but encouraged. I was terrified. But that's the thing about the gospel, is that if it doesn't sound like good news, it probably isn't. Instead, the message that we're given in the gospel is that physicality, this world, physical matter, matters to God. The incarnation is the great announcement that this world actually matters to God, so much so that God takes on our flesh and dwells in this space, all in order to save us. And if we're bent toward thinking that physical things of this world don't matter, then it all just becomes some kind of mental exercise, some kind of mental conversion for us. But like we've said time and time and time again in the words of Jamie Smith, we are so much more than just brains on a stick. We have bodies, we live in time, and we live in space, and we have engagement with humanity, and all of it matters to God. So often we rush to this pagan, platonic view of the world. And if we're not careful, we'll care more about people's souls than we will their empty bellies. We'll worry so much more about saving people's minds without actually caring for their bodies. But the Christian life, again, is an embodied physical life. And so this is why we don't just concern ourselves with what we think, but also what we do as we listen and we're led by the Spirit. Now, of course, Jesus shares this parable that really sheds a lot of light on this. If you're paying attention, you'd realize just how bad of a pun that was. The gospel's about lamps and lighting them. Anyway. So in our gospel, we have this parable of the ten bridesmaids who go out to wait for the bridegroom. And in their waiting, some of them are prepared bringing enough oil, and some are foolish, and they take no extra oil with them. Those who were prepared, these are the wise ones, they're welcomed into this wedding banquet, and then those who were foolish are sent away. In the ancient wisdom tradition, we learn that the wise are always and oftentimes the ones who are prepared. And the foolish are always those who are unprepared. But of course, Jesus has a way of stepping into this wisdom tradition and actually fulfilling it in an unexpected way. Jesus isn't just telling us a simple wisdom parable, but there's actually something about him here. So Jesus, of course, we understand, we believe, is the bridegroom. 
He is the one who arrives on the scene, showing up to his people. And there are some who have been foolish, and there are some who are not ready for this to happen. In this case, we would understand that the Pharisees are the ones who have left or who have felt so comfortable about their position, who understand their place in God's kingdom, or they assume that they do, but they weren't really ready. Because when Jesus comes to him, to them, they don't recognize him for what he really is. So in this case, they're the ones who are foolish. What I think we're offered in this parable is some glimpse of a future reality. That we live today in an expectation and anticipation of a future kingdom. But this anticipation and this waiting, this longing that we experience, it often gives way to a kind of boredom that life feels tedious and then darkness comes in. And we start asking ourselves, will Jesus ever really come? And the question that we're offered is, how long can you hold out hope? If the end of the world really is good news for us, and we're anticipating and hoping and trusting that that end of the world is actually going to come someday, ending with Christ coming, setting all things to rights, wiping away every tear, actually making the world as it was intended to be, and we wait and we wait and we wait the question becomes for us, how long can we hold out hope that it's all going to be set right? In a lot of ways, I think this text is a primer for us as the church as we head toward a season of Advent. As we prepare to step into a season of longing and anticipation, we start to assess our hearts now, here at the end of a long season ordinary time that is just full of ordinary living, and we ask ourselves, have we given up hope? And then in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of a chaotic election season, the upheaval of everything that we have known as normal, how long can you hold out hope? Are you prepared to hope into the darkness, is the question that we're asked today, into the monotony of our daily living? Can we hold out hope? What we trust is that our hope is rooted in the fact that God's ways are higher than our ways, that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so we hope, we hope, we hope, we hope into the darkness, waiting and anticipating that Christ really will come. And in the meantime, we care for one another. Let me sidebar here and say specifically, we at Sanctuary, those of us who call this place home, we have to find ways to really care for one another. And not just find ways to avoid offending one another. That's not real care. We don't just find ways to tiptoe around one another so that we don't hurt each other's feelings and call it care. If we're really going to stay together, as a community, as a family, as a body of believers. It won't be because we didn't offend one another or wound one another. Those kinds of things are inevitable in a family. 
It will be because we are more committed to one another's care and healing that we will, at the end of all things, be those whose lamps are ready, be those who are anticipating the coming Christ and are also preparing space in the world where Christ's reign is already welcome. But it is is the Spirit who prepares us. Our work, our effort can only go so far unless we're truly led and animated by the Spirit. Now, I honestly wish that being animated by the Spirit looked a little more like possession, right? That we're just like overwhelmed and overtaken and we don't actually have to participate in the thing. Like, just move me along. Make me do what I'm supposed to do. Just don't make me think about it. Don't make me have to try and figure it out, right? And when I think about being animated by the Spirit, somewhere in my mind, I go to some dark place thinking about zombies that don't really have any kind of control over themselves other than their most basic appetites, which happen to be brains. Like zombies don't have bills. They don't have responsibilities. They just go along fulfilling those really basic appetites, right? And this is not what being animated by the Spirit looks like. It's something scarier. It looks like being a parent trying to get your kid ready to go and get out the door because we've got to go somewhere. Much more terrifying than zombies. It's that constant reminder to your children, come on, let's go. You've got to put your shoes on. No, 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 your socks go first. No, no. Where is your coat? It's the largest item of clothing that you have. How do you lose your coat? We have these conversations endlessly. But I think this is what it is to be led by the Spirit, that it is these constant little reminders, hey, let's go. Hey, we're getting ready hey, are you anticipating? Do you have everything that you need? And of course, we can't be the parents who are always dressing our kids for themselves. At some point, they have to be prepared to go. That's what being animated by the Spirit looks like. These constant little nudges, these whispers into our ear, are you ready? Where are your socks? We have to go. As we wrap this up today, I think there is just so much more about being this kind of people who are ready. And then even as we come to a moment where we're thinking about this gospel text and finding ourselves here, trying to find out what characters are we playing? Are we the bridesmaids who are ready? Are we those who are not yet ready, I think we continue to turn this gem. We start to see ourselves as other characters in the story. So that even when we come to that place, when the bridegroom is coming, and we don't feel ready for this kind of existence, this kind of hope in the world, we can rush to the marketplace And we can get our oil there, trusting that Christ is the one who is holding the oil, that Christ is the one who does offer to refill our lamps. And then we do go, 
And we do become the people who are prepared. And then when other people come to us and they are unprepared, we don't be the bridegrooms, the bridemaids who hold all of their oil to themselves, but we can say to them, take some of mine. Because when the hope of Christ is the oil that is in our lamps, it doesn't run out. We can turn to those who are not ready, and we can say, take some of mine, because I won't be empty when I share this with you. So sometimes we are the one who is prepared. Sometimes we are the one who is unprepared. And then sometimes we're the one working in the marketplace, selling this hope to whoever needs it so that they don't get left out in the darkness. That's what I think our hope is here at Sanctuary, that we become people who offer a little bit of light in the darkness, that we become people who share our oil with those who have ran out. And to be sure, we try to fill our lamps with all kinds of counterfeit things, right? All kinds of hopes that don't actually hold us out into a world. And so we fill our lamps with things like consumerism. And the thing about consumerism is that it tries to nail down your identity simply by what you consume. That the most true thing about you becomes you are what you have. I love these, these words from Henry Nouwen where he says, you are more than what you do. You are more than what you have. Those things do not define you. You have your basic identity as a beloved child of God. What we see in another one of our gospel texts today is this story of Joshua. And he's just led the people out of the wilderness. They're moving into the promised land and he's giving this kind of speech. And these are, are, are words that we have all heard before. It's the, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But what comes before that is Joshua tells the people of God, you have a choice to make. Your ancestors worshiped different gods in a different place, not here and not this God, but this God chose you as his people. So who will you choose? And here's the thing. This is not about morality. We remember in our gospel text, all 10 bridesmaids fall asleep. <laughs> Every single one of them gives way to the sleepiness. And in, the, in Joshua's words, you didn't choose God first. God was the one who chose you. And so as we land this plane today, my hope and my trust is that we are a people who live with a kind of expectation and a kind of anticipation that we're actually moving into a more beautiful future for the world, that God is working, that we are people who are led by the Spirit and not counterfeit hopes, that we are what we do or that we are what we have we hope and we trust that we are people who God chose first. And the question becomes for us, what will you choose? Will you choose to be people who offer hope, real hope? 
Will you be people who choose to hope into the darkness, into the monotony, into the day-to-day living, trusting that as we engage with pain in the world, as we engage with hunger, as we engage with all kinds of things that are not yet right, do we believe that one day they will be? If so, we won't worry about offending or wounding and hurting one another. As best as we try not to, it's going to happen, but we can be people who are more committed to each other's care and more committed to each other's healing at the end of the day. My prayer for us is that sanctuary will be exactly that, sanctuary for people that can find healing, that can find real hope, not a counterfeit hope. So let's be people who are ready with an anticipation and expectation that Christ will come. Amen.